Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, a new poll conducted for Elections Canada suggests that Canadians have strong confidence in institutions. That's great news. But it also shows that we easily fall prey to conspiracy theories. Huh? What kind of implications does that have? Well, we'll talk about that. Melanie Jolie received one of the biggest promotions on Tuesday's cabinet shuffle. She becomes the fifth foreign affairs minister in the last six years. What lessons did she learn from her 2018 cabinet demotion? And how successful is she going to be in the new job? Well, we're going to get into that. And the Pope is coming to Canada. We'll be packing an apology when he gets here. It's all coming up in the Bill Kelly Podcast, and it starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. How safe do you feel right now? And how much do you put into conspiracy theories? They're all over the place right now on social media. And, well, not just on social media, I suppose, just about every place you look right now. Uh, you know, there's, there's a, a concern here about our institutions who seem to be under attack right now. Uh, there was a national survey that was done here in Canada about that by Elections Canada, actually, the folks that organize our elections every year. Uh, that's got some very interesting information about just how we perceive uh, conspiracy theories and what, if any, impact it has on uh, our, our attitude towards institutions and, and towards elections, for that matter, too. Joining us to uh, help analyze this, is something he does so very well, is uh, Phil Gursky. Phil is the president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting. He's also the director of the University of Ottawa's security program. He's a former CSIS analyst and uh, author as well. His latest book is called The Peaceable Kingdom, uh, History of Terrorism in Canada from Confederation of the President. I believe it's still available on Amazon. A great read for you. Phil, welcome to the program. Good to have you with us again. Good morning, Bill. How are you today? I'm doing just fine, thanks very much. Uh, interesting days, uh, it, it, to be sure. You know, we, we watch the television coverage of what's going on in the States right now, and we say, good heavens, I hope that's not us. Uh, the insurrection, of course, uh, on January the 6th, which is still being investigated. Uh, there's always a little part of us, I think, says, uh, well, that could never happen here. We, we don't have that sort of problem here. But the numbers uh, from this poll by Elections Canada, Phil, tell uh, an interesting story here. Apparently, we still have uh, strong confidence in our, our institutions here, including government and, and media. Uh, but a lot of us, I guess even a growing number, it's not, it's not a majority yet, but it's a growing number, uh, seem to pay attention to these conspiracy theories if, if they don't embrace them necessarily. Yeah, you know, it's an interesting question, Bill. You know, conspiracy theories are as old as time, right? I'm sure the first conspiracy theory was when Eve told Adam the devil made her do it. And, and I think most of us have dismissed conspiracy theories as kind of silly. I mean, we're the same generation, Bill. Do you remember the National Enquirer at your local grocery store? Oh, sure. Inquiring <laughs> you know, minds would, want to know. Exactly. It would have ridiculous stories that we all recognize were, were in, completely impossible. My, my personal favorite was, was, was a front cover that said they had found a, a Titanic survivor on an iceberg, and he told his rescuers he really hates fish 75 years later. You know, th- those were patently very unbelievable stories, and most of them still are. I'm not trying to give any credence to conspiracy theories, but in your introductory comments, you made a good point. They're ubiquitous. They're all around us. They're on social media. They're part of our lives. And while most are ridiculous, some are perhaps more believable than others, depending on how you listen to them. And I think the, the, the concern is, and you raised the capital incident in January of, of this year, that in a worst-case scenario, people act upon them in violent ways. And I think that's the thing we need to talk about is how likely or probable is that we're going to see violence linked to conspiracy theories. And that's that's an interesting question on this. And because when we see, and, and it's inevitable, I guess, we're going to compare to what's happening going in, in the States these days. Uh, and I guess it's a chicken and egg argument here, really, Phil. Is is it because we've lose, lose faith with, in our institutions, in our governments, and in, in media, and that's what 
gives uh, credibility or credence or, or gives the opportunity for these things to grow? Or do these things just grow and then we start to lose? And not those of us who, who adhere to these and embrace these. Uh, is which, which comes first here, the, the conspiracy theories or, or the loss of, of confidence in our institutions? Well, that's a great question, as you said. And as that survey showed, we actually have fairly high confidence in the yeah. institutions. And yet simultaneously, we have conspiracy theories. I don't know in terms of what comes first and what comes second, but I do want to caution to your listeners, and you know, let's not get overly panicked about this. The vast majority of theories are patently ridiculous. Most of us see it as that. We see it as entertainment. Yeah, you know, we share them on, online. I don't share those online, but some people share them online saying, you know, ha-ha, funny, funny. And I don't want to make, you know, a melt out of a molehill here. I don't want to suggest that the rise of conspiracy theories, which, as I said, have been around as long as humans have been around, are it's somehow more worrisome nowadays. I think the difference today is the ease with which they're shared because of social media. Mm -hmm. This is not something you talk about over, over coffee at Tim Hortons in the morning anymore. It's something you put on, on Facebook or on Twitter or on whatever social platform you use, and they can spread around the world in a heartbeat. And that's maybe the concern is that the more that people see them, the more that the, the onesies and twosies that get really angry about them might take the law into their own hands to address them. What about the repetitive factor, though? That's interesting. I mean, anybody who's ever been involved in marketing and advertising, and we see this even if you're not involved in those areas, you watch TV or even listen to the radio these days, uh, you see, oh, my God, I just heard that commercial 10 seconds ago, and they're playing it again. Well, that's because they want to beat the message into you. That's, you know, it's, it's subliminal, but it, they, they wouldn't be doing it if it didn't work. If, if we're exposed to this time and time and time again, what kind of an impact does it have on us? And, I'm, even if the first reaction is, oh, that's a, that's BS. Right. Uh, the more you hear it, the, you start, well, maybe there's something to it. Well, there certainly is a, a human tendency when the, you hear something, it's anything repetitive in nature is that you either become used to it and ignore it or you internalize it. You know, babies, for example, if they show them images and it's the same image, image time and time again, the baby turns his head or her head. And then when they present a new image, all of a sudden the baby's interested. So it's a bit of a half of this and half of that. I, I do think that the danger is, is that if, the, if they are so repetitive that you hear them all the time, some of us, and I use the us and, you know, us writ large, might actually start to think these things are true. Like, in other words, you know, if, if it weren't true, why were they printed? That was my, that was my mother's you know, view of the, of the acquirer. If it's not true, why would it be in print? Again, I, I don't want to sensationalize this, but I do think certainly those who may have already tendencies to believe in this stuff anyway may have those beliefs simply amplified and strengthened by the fact that they're, they're, they're seeing it everywhere all the time. And as a consequence, they may think, well, if it's that true, maybe it's time to do something about it. It's interesting about this because you know, when you spend five minutes on, on social media, Facebook or Twitter or Insta, whatever it is, and you'd think, my God, nobody has any trust in our institutions. They all think these guys are a bunch of crooks and criminals. They lock them up. You know, we've heard all those chants before. And you see that stuff time and time again on social media. I found it refreshing from this poll here to say that 78% of people actually have faith in our institutions like the elections agency, 74% in, in, in police, uh, the mainstream media is only 55%. But I mean, given the scenario that we're facing these days, that's still a pretty good number. Uh, so, you know, in other words, don't believe everything you see on social media. That's that's a small portion of public opinion. And it's, it's, it's a loud portion of public opinion. But according to these numbers in this country, anyway, it's not the majority. You, you raise some really good points, and I think the lesson here, of course, and, and I, I can weigh on this from my background in intelligence, 
you're only as good as the source of the information you choose to use. So in intelligence, we would have to corroborate information from multiple sources before we decided what was true and what wasn't true. I think most people, everybody has the ability to use multiple sources to determine exactly what's real and what's not. Do we take the time to do so? Maybe we do, maybe we don't. But, you know, getting back to social media, Bill, the other thing, of course, that's problematic is that most of these social media platforms have algorithms. So if you read the Titanic story about the guy that survived 75 years later, he said, well, if you like that story, you'll like this story. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of criticism is being put on these companies for the, the way in which the algorithms are constructed. In other words, you go from you know story A to story Z, and in between it gets more and more ludicrous and more and more unbelievable, but the algorithm simply bombards you with information that simply amplifies and, and confirms what you've just read. So maybe the problem isn't necessarily the, the, the initial information of the conspiracy theory. It's what rabbit hole the algorithm takes you down. Now, now that's a whole other issue about who creates the algorithms, for what purpose, can they be altered, and things like that. Maybe those are the questions we should be asking now, not the conspiracy, the conspiracy theories themselves, but why does these social media platforms seem to amplify them through their algorithms? Yeah, certainly one of the questions that uh, Zuckerberg is being asked these days in light of what's happening with Facebook and some exactly. of those revelations. But but your point, though, Phil, might explain one of the aspects of this uh, survey from Elections Canada uh, that says there is a strong minority of Canadians that firmly believe that there is a small cabal of people that secretly manipulate world events from the shadows. And we've all heard those those stories. You know, that, that oh, you know the, this, this group is behind everything. They, you know, they, they influence governments, they influence this, yada, yada, yada. Uh, and they fervently believe that now. And again, it's a small minority, but a very vocal minority. And, and you know, is, is this something that that intelligence agencies, for instance, should be tracking and to see, you know, where are these people and, and how fervent are they? And, and, you know, how to what extent, as you just mentioned, uh, how, how to what extent would they go to try to address this problem if, if in fact, they feel motivated to do so? Well, it's a huge issue. And, you know, again, going back to the January 6th insurrection, as you call it, I don't call it terrorism, I call it insurrection. Actually, I call it a frat party going wrong. You know, that was raised in many ways, not just by, by Donald Trump, by, by this, this mysterious QAnon, this Q figure who claims that, in fact, the United States is run by a, a pedophile satanic club that drinks blood. And so, you know, when you get that level, I think, of conspiracy theory that is pointing out you know, it has proof of this cabal, as you use the word, that runs things, and people start to drink that Kool-Aid, that's when it becomes problematic. That's when it leads to acts of violence. And you're absolutely right. I mean, I can't speak for CISA. I don't work there anymore. But, you know, we used to look at all kinds of what we call ideologically inspired violence it's under Section 2C of the CISAs Act, which essentially is terrorism. And to me, if you've got a QAnon figure in Canada who's raising this, you know, that, you know, Justin Trudeau is a, is a pedophile Satanist, and depending on the audience that this person gets, you might get people saying, hmm, well, if that's true, we better do, you know, take action to get rid of them. That is problematic. That is a threat to public safety and national security, which would fall under the CISA's mandate. Again, are they looking at it? I don't know. I don't have that information, but it certainly would fall within the CISA's mandate. Again, I'm not trying to you know, over-embellish how important this is, but your security service is there to provide an early warning system to the government of Canada. This is what our investigations are showing. This is what our intelligence sources are telling us. These are the things you need to, be, to worry about in the event that something is going to happen. Because, of course, you want to prevent it from happening, not wait until afterwards. That's what happened on January the 6th. So I think it certainly falls within the national security mandate. And what priority it's getting is a really good question, but I'm sure it's, it's definitely crossed their minds of late. But, Phil, what's troubling most people, and I think it should be very troubling to all of us, is, is the attitude and the actions that are taken here. I mean, if you were upset with, for instance, an elected official 20, 30 years ago, 
uh, you might write a strong letter to the to the newspaper or, or call into a talk show like this and, and express your your vehement opposition to this. Uh, you might even be so inclined to say, "Okay, we're going to have a rally outside of, of the you know the Parliament buildings or you know Queen's Park or whatever." And really, you know, I'm going to bring the placards and everything else. Now it, it's 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 starting to manifest itself in violence. I mean, there's a story here in Hamilton. Uh, in the local paper here, about uh, a number of local politicians on local council that have had their houses vandalized uh, uh, and and th- threats made against them uh, because of their positions on certain issues. Uh, it's it's taking it to the next level. Maybe it's just a, a bunch of idiots that are just trying to show off and do something stupid. But you know, if you're the victim of that, if you're the perpetrator of this, uh, it's one thing. But I mean, if you're the one who's at the receiving end of this, you have to wonder how far are they going to go. Yeah, and you do raise a really good issue, Bill. And then here's the challenge for the security services. Now, I'll give you an analogy here. So I used to work on, on counterterrorism at CSIS, and we would, you know, under our mandate, investigate Canadians who were expressing views that were supportive of, let's say, Islamist terrorism, things like al-Qaeda and ISIS, mm-hmm. things like that. The problem was that, you know, the more rocks you overturned, um, most of the people who expressed these views couldn't organize a proverbial piss-up in a bar, and they had no intent. They just wanted, they, they thought they were a big man on campus, they wanted to vent things online, whatever. They wanted to attract attention for all kinds of reasons. I think that when you, when you work for CSIS or the RCMP or Hamilton Police, whatever, the, the challenge facing you is, is, is how do you differentiate the wannabes from the real ones? Mm-hmm. And, and in my experience, the vast majority, 99% of these people, have either the intent or capability of doing anything violent. It's, it's that 1% that you, you want to try and find and locate and neutralize. And the problem is, it's really hard to distinguish between the 99 and the 1 because there's nothing obvious that says, oh, this person is going to do it versus those 99 will not. And, and what you have to do is you have to devote the investigational resources to look at all of them to make that determination. You only have so much time and so much money. We, do we foil things? We foil things all the time. And, and, and you know, kudos to the services that do that. On, on the other hand, you know, do you have enough women and men and, and, and surveillance resources to look at everybody? The answer is no. So you're constantly making decisions on where do I deploy my people? Which ones do I think pose the greatest threat? Because that's, of course, where you want to put the, you know, the, the, the majority of, of the people that are, that are going to have to try to investigate and, and undermine this. And it's not a perfect game. Is it going to get more violent? I mean, I don't have a crystal ball. I still think the vast majority of them are people that are happy to issue threats, uh, you know, try to scare people, but never have any intention of doing things. But you know as well as I do, Bill, is that it only takes one. And if something were to happen, then the, immediately the thing is, well, where were the police? Where was, where was the security service? Where was the RCMP? Why wasn't this guy investigated and stopped? And that's the, that's the burden you bear when you work in this industry, is you're only as good as your last failure, uh, despite Herculean efforts to stop it. You don't stop everyone. And as well, the, and IRA, you, uh, the IRA famously said, Bill, to Margaret Thatcher, you have to get lucky 100% of the time. You have to get lucky once. Exactly. And, and, and you mentioned this in the book, too. I mean, you know, there are the organizations and, and the Five Eyes and other agencies. I'd like to see sister tracking those. And there's a file on some people. But, you know, you always wonder about the lone wolf. And, you know, you uh, you got to complain about it. Well, do you follow up on that? You just don't have the resources to follow up on every one of those things. And it's, it's a little frightening these days. And, and, and you, you know, I mean, notwithstanding the fact that people that the Zuckerbergs and others will say, look, at, no, we're just a platform here. Uh, they're, they're enablers in this situation. And, and that has to be addressed, too. Uh, which I guess is what government's trying to do, and I'm not so sure that's even the right, right solution. Uh, we're out of time. Uh, this is always a great conversation, Phil. Interesting survey, and uh, great to get your perspective on this, too. Thanks so much for the time today. You're most welcome, Bill. You have a great day. 
You too. Phil Gursky, of course, uh, at the University of Ottawa. He's in charge of, the, of their security program, former CSIS analyst. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. A lot of uh, feedback and pushback, as a matter of fact, about the uh, Trudeau government's uh, cabinet uh, that was announced earlier this week, of course, in Ottawa. Uh, three main portfolios that seem to be getting an awful lot of attention. One, of course, is the Environment Ministry, uh, now Minister Gilbeau, uh, who is, uh, well, not being embraced uh, by Alberta and Saskatchewan, as you might expect, and there's some concern about his views. Uh, we talked about uh, Anita Anand, of course, who's going to take over defense a couple of days ago. The other is uh, the foreign affairs portfolio, and Melanie Jolie is the, uh, Canada's new top diplomat. She's the fifth foreign affairs minister in the last six years, replacing Marc Garneau, who essentially was uh, booted out of cabinet, it seems anyway. Uh, at a news conference uh, just after the swearing-in, Jolie quoted Lester Pearson, former prime minister, who said that Canada is able to play a big role on the international stage because it punches above its weight. And, of course, the, the, the world has changed since Lester B. Pearson, but the vision that we will have at Global Affairs is one that takes into account that very strategic work that Canada is doing across the world, and it will be a mix of humility and audacity. So, interesting uh, perspective on that, laying the groundwork for that. Uh, let's let's talk about this and analyze uh, her role in, in uh, what's happening these days. And to do that, we're so pleased to welcome back to the program uh, Stephanie Carvin, who is an associate professor at the Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. Uh, professor, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks for joining us today. Hey, always fun to be on the show. You know, I, I'm getting two opinions here from some of the quote-unquote experts here. One saying that, uh, that Melanie Jolie does not have anywhere near the experience to do this, and this is a very important portfolio. And some of my other colleagues up in the nation's capital are saying, look, let's let's look at the tea leaves here. Uh, foreign affairs is not a huge priority for the Canadian government right now, so don't you know get all dead out of shape about this. What, what, what's your read on this? Uh, oh, sorry about that. My oven just went off. Um, the, um, oh. My read on this is... Um, <laughs> I think my oven was warning me about what I was about to say. Um, <laughs> the, um, the fact is that the, uh, I think both of those, there's, there's merit to both of those views, right? In the first instance, um, you know, I don't associate confidence in Melanie Jolie, to be quite frank. I do have friends who have pointed out that she is seen as having been very successful on the official languages file. Uh, which, of course, is very, very important in Quebec. And, of course, she handled the Liberal campaign very well, um, if, you know, you consider another minority government well. But this is this is the reward for her. And at the same time, it's also true that the, you know, for all of its rhetoric, the Trudeau government does not do much in the realm of foreign affairs. Um, and that's really disappointing. In 2017, we saw then Foreign Minister Christian Freeland stand up in Parliament and give what I thought was one of the most important, significant, and interesting speeches on foreign policy we had ever seen from a foreign minister. And it talked about how Canada needed to, you know, effectively carve out a place for itself in a world where the U.S. was no longer as dependable as it had once been, and that we saw rising authoritarian movements around the world. It was an incredible speech. But the Trudeau government never lived up to that. Uh, It has not really done anything um, audacious or, or, humi- or humility, or with humility for that matter. Um, it, you know, we have not seen any large uh, increases in spending. Global Affairs Canada is frankly considered to be one of the most broken ministries in the entire Canadian government. It just seems incapable of delivering timely and important advice. 
And this is a real problem because all of the things that Christia Freeland said in 2017 about the U.S. not being the ally it once was, that, you know, we have, we're looking at a, uh, you know, a, a, basically a, a grumbling Russia and a cranky China that is making some fairly aggressive moves in the South China Sea. These things are all still there, but where are we? What are we doing? The only thing we've done is failed to get a seat on the Security Council. So that was my rant, and I think that's what my oven was warning me about when I... <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I thought it was just saying, go, you go for it. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> all, all valid points, though. It, it, when, when you look at the greater good here and what's, what's supposed to be happening here, though, Stephanie, uh, I, I mean, when you look at the CV, I mean, she's been in cabinet before. She's actually demoted. Uh, at one no. point uh, because of her handling yeah. and heritage. Uh, uh, but they do point to the fact that, you know, she was uh, the federal minister in, uh, for Canada anyway, the International Alliance of Francophone Countries, served as vice chair of the Cabinet Committee on Global Affairs. Uh, she I, apparently in the last couple of years got her master's degree in law at Oxford University. Uh, the the CV looks impressive, uh, but I'm, I'm and, and we'll take that at face value, but I'm looking at what's going on globally right now because uh, they talked about it a little bit during the election campaign, and we've certainly heard a lot about it since, is uh, Canada-China relations is something that needs right. to be addressed. Uh, our role now in NATO, which is reemerging now because there's a new president south of the border, uh, what's happening with the G7 and the G20? Uh, there's a lot on the plate here internationally right now, and, and your point's well taken. And it was interesting that, that Minister Jolie quoted Lester Pearson, uh, and she was absolutely right. This is a different time and place. Canada did have a role in international affairs. Uh, I mean, Lester Pearson's a Nobel Prize winner for his work, uh, peacekeeping work, and, and Canada had that reputation at that time. Uh, it's not something that, that people think front of mind right now with the Canadian government right now. It's, it's I don't want to say it's not a priority, but they seem to be looking inward as opposed to globally, with the possible exception of our relationship with the United States, and that needs some repairing too, I would think. Yeah, all of the above is true. The only thing I would add to that is, you know, I think to a large extent, if we are to cut the Trudeau government some slack, it's that they're not concerned about Canadian affairs because Canadians, by and large, aren't that concerned about international affairs. We are a relatively safe country, right? We're bordered by three oceans. Yep. We have a mostly benign neighbor to ourselves, mostly benign. Um, and, you know, we haven't had to think about security in the ways that almost all of our allies have had to, right? You know, we have kind of Russia on the other side of the world that, you know, sometimes sends planes over to, to kind of harass our pilots and things like this. But, you know, Canadians themselves haven't had to think about these issues. But the, the fact is that now the way that international affairs is going is that the kinds of threats that we are experiencing no longer respect borders, right? So we're looking at hacking. We're looking at influence operations. We're looking at climate change. We're looking at a whole host of um, challenges to the international order, trade, post-COVID stability, all these kinds of things. They, they don't matter when it comes to borders, right? And so it's like we need to have serious thinking about our foreign policy, irrespective of whether or not Canadians are particularly interested. They should be. But, you know, I, with everything going on, I can kind of forgive them. But that's the, the job of the government is to make sure that, you know, we're going to be prepared, not just for tomorrow, but for next year, next decade, and the decade after that. And the way we have that is that you have to actually think through and make hard choices about what our foreign policy priorities actually are in this world. What is it that you want from China? Because you can't ignore China. You can't just walk China. It's a sixth of the world's population. Right. It's a it's making aggressive moves. Um, we have important cultural ties with China. We have a, a very 
important and valuable Chinese Canadian communities. How do you engage with a country like that while achieving your interests, but also your values? And we're, we're not seeing this. And as an example, you know, we see, you know, it was, I think, two weeks ago, I, I was actually at a forum that was looking at new restrictions on doing research with China because of concerns about human rights and intellectual property theft and working with the Chinese military that some universities have gotten themselves into. And while I was speaking at this forum, at the very same time news was breaking that Dominic Barton, our ambassador to China, was sitting on a panel with you know, China's ambassador to Canada talking about how great it is to do business with China. Right. And that's symptomatic of a government that doesn't have a vision of what we should be doing with this growing power in the East. We need to have a clear line, uh, a clear strategy. And without that kind of hard thinking, we'll be in a bad place. So to kind of bring it back to the original question is, is Melanie Jolie the person to really bring this about? I admit I have my hesitations. Well, and maybe she'll surprise us. I, I don't know. But uh, I so. again, how much, how much, you know, leeway is the prime minister going to give her to do, address some of these things? I mean, as you mentioned, there's a whole long, long list here. You know, we, we talked about G7 and, and G20, and that meeting's coming up in a couple of days. As a matter of fact, the prime minister left yeah. for Europe today. Uh, Arctic sovereignty is another issue. And, and, you know, yeah, we know that's important, but, you know, like we're in southern Ontario right now, and I got to tell you, not too many people are, are paying much attention to Arctic sovereignty unless they see an, an item out on CBC News or something like that. It's just not front of mind. Uh, but what should concern us, as you just mentioned, is the relationship between China. China's becoming a world power economically, militarily, of course. Uh, we know that uh, that just a couple of weeks ago, the United States, Britain, and Australia struck a defense pact uh, to counter China's Indo-Pacific policy. And there was a lot of voices, as you know, back in, in when that announcement was made to say, hey, whoa, what about us? And I'm told by a few people that have expertise in that area of the world that they basically said to Canada, get your act together. We don't even know what your policy is on, that, on any of this stuff. Uh, and what we hear from, from the government time and time again is, well, we're monitoring the situation. <laughs> That's not going to cut it. You, you've got to say, here's what we stand for. Here's what we want to see. And, and when it comes to some of these international affairs, that's just not forthcoming. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we're just not saying what we want to achieve in the world, which is a really odd place to be, right? Like, it's a really odd thing to just not say what our priorities are um, and what we're going to do and how we're going to achieve them. Now, I don't necessarily think, you know, whether or not Canada buys nuclear subs, I think there's good arguments for and good arguments against, um, but we should be talking about it and we're not, right? Um, but also, like, do we want to achieve in the Asia Pacific? I mean, we haven't real, or, you know, sometimes people call it, in, yeah, I don't know if you know this, I found this out the other day, Asia Pacific includes China, Indo-Pacific doesn't. It's, it's, yeah. it's a yeah. So that's what we're hearing now, right? So um, well, it, basically, it was the Chinese government. It was the Chinese government that coined the Asia Pacific phrase, wasn't it? Because they wanted to be inclusive in that, and they're the ones that set in the rules, according to them. <laughs> well, that wouldn't surprise. I, I can't speak to that, but it wouldn't surprise me. Um, but the fact is that you know we haven't really engaged in that region of the world militarily since the Korean War. It was really interesting to me. Again, you know, we talked about restrictions on research with China. We talked about our ambassador promoting trade with China. And, uh, you know, but then also, what was it, a week and a half ago, we sent a ship with the United States through the Taiwan Strait, basically yeah. 
sending a very pointed message to China, right? That, you know, we kind of support Taiwanese independence and freedom of navigation of the seas. But so what are we trying to say? What are we trying to do there? And I can understand why our allies are frustrated because we just don't seem to have articulated a policy. I guess, and but I guess my other concern, in, if I'm being perfectly honest here, I do worry that if we did articulate some kind of foreign policy proposal, that it would be so vague <laughs> to be kind of useless, right? Like, um, we need hard, sharp thinking. And that's not, you know, this government um, is, is, you know, and I'm not trying to say this like in a political way, but the fact is they really just like to put out good messages, but not necessarily good policy. They like to have good pictures, but they don't like to have good substance. Uh, because substance requires hard choices. And that's not what this government seems to be really into. It seems to be trying to please the most amount of people the most amount of time. But that's not the way you actually make foreign policy. And and I do worry about that eventually we're going to pay the price. That, you know, in five years' time, we're going to look back and see, like, wow, five years ago, we really should have made these decisions. Because let's be honest. I mean, I'm watching things in the United States and not feeling great about it. Um, I'm looking at things in the U.S. and seeing, you know, like Donald Trump, too, not an unreasonable prospect. And if that's the case, how have we prepared to manage international affairs going forward? Because I'm not sure we've done anything. I think once Trump was out, we all kind of took a, you know, we all kind of sighed and thought, okay, we can kind of just go on doing what we wanted to do. No, we can't because these forces have not gone away. So how are we responding to all of this? And that's the kind of dilemma that's going to be confronting the minister. And, you know, so when she talks about audacity and humility, like, <laughs> good luck, because I think we're going to need a lot more than those two things. Well, as, as Winston Churchill... My advice Churchill is free, said, by the way. I don't know. I can just as, shout on the radio. As, it's, it's pretty as Winston good. Churchill, as me. Winston Churchill once said, though, Stephanie, he said, uh, you know, so-and-so, he was talking about a fellow MP, is a very humble person, and he frankly has a lot to be humble about. Uh, so I guess our reputation precedes us here. But did we, have we not fallen in the last couple of generations into this trap of simply following whatever the American foreign policy is? Uh, it was kind of like, and it doesn't matter which prime minister or which foreign affairs minister we're talking about here. All too often, whether it was our, to do with G7, to do with a, a China relationship, was, yeah, what they said. Yeah, that's that's where we are on this. Uh, but we dropped that because of the Trump administration, because clearly we didn't want to follow that. Uh, and it's incumbent upon us, I would think, that, okay, then you've got to carve your own way. And I don't think we're good at that. Now, we haven't haven't done much of it lately. Yeah, I think that's true. You know, to a large extent, I do think our interests do overlap with the United States to a large extent. Oh, sure extent, they do. Right? I mean, people, yeah, and people often say, oh, we're caught between China and the United States. No, we're not. Like, we're not. Like, we're, we're in the West. We belong to Western alliances. We do trade with the U.S. Like, I mean, we are with the U.S. and not just because we're forced to be, but because I think I it just makes sense. Um, so I think there's that aspect of it. But also, um, yeah, I mean, just be, but I agree in the sense that we need to kind of Canadianize our foreign policy, which sounds like a little bit bizarre. But what I think that means is like we need to look at the world through a lens of being like, OK, well, what can we achieve here? What 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 does Canada want? Do we want to diversify our trade? You know, I mean, we joined the, the, the comprehensive and progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. Thank you, Trudeau, for renaming that 
uh, treaty into the most unpronounceable thing imaginable. Um, and then, but also, you know, even going back, like, I mean, Canada recognized uh, the People's Republic of China uh, before the United States, for better or for worse. Um, you know, we, we have had relations with Cuba. The United States has not. I mean, we have had our own independent foreign policies for uh, a number of, of years or decades and going back. But I just don't think we have a foreign policy now. And, and you know, again, I, I appreciate it's not the front of mind, but, you know, what are we going to do if we see a situation where the United States decides to become isolationist, turns inward, Europe decides to kind of turn inward? Well, where does that leave us? Like, are we hanging out with Australia? Like, like what are we doing? Because Australia is making its own deals with the UK and US. Um, and I think, you know, we, we just, don't seem to want to confront these realities. And I, I don't know, I feel like I'm being such a Debbie Downer. I mean, I'm always on your show being a Debbie Downer, Bill, but like... Not at um, all, not at all. We want, we want, we want, you speak the truth, and it's it, it's one of the challenges, and, and it's one of the challenges that Minister Jolie is going to have to face here, and uh, I, I'd like to think that she's up to the job. I mean, she's an intelligent woman, and, and you know, there's, and I, I think she's probably got a lot to contribute, but I'm just wondering if she starts moving on some of these initiatives, if the, uh, if the powers that be are just going to say, whoa, 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 let's just, just cool it here just a little bit. Uh, I, I think that's true, and I think, I mean, to your point, and, and I, I, you know, the fact is, you, you did mention earlier, like, will Trudeau let her do some of the things she wants to do? That is a reality, right? Like, the fact is that foreign policy is increasingly controlled out of the prime minister's office, that the foreign affairs minister is often sent around the world to meetings, but the hard decisions are actually made by the prime minister. That's also a, a true thing. So, you know, that may be the case that Melanie Jolie does actually come up with some really good ideas, but the Trudeau government itself decides that it doesn't really want to go that route. So um, that, that is something that could happen. I mean, honestly, I do wish her the best because I, I really believe in Canada. We have smart people, talented people. We have people who are here from all over the world who are, you know, just inventing crazy, awesome things. And we have so much potential as a country, but we have to make the investment in our foreign policy infrastructure so we can take these ideas, take these people, and bring them around the world because that's going to make us better off as a country, right? That's going to make us – I don't know if people connect those things, that having a, 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 a strong foreign policy helps us to make sure that we are you know, not only protected from the threats, but that people uh, think of Canada, that they want to invest in Canada – and that is going to just, you know, help make our economy better overall. A lot of challenges. And we, we might get an inkling as to just where they're going on this. Uh, to your point, though, uh, Stephanie, uh, in the next couple of days, as we mentioned, the prime minister's on his way to Europe right now. Uh, the climate conference, certainly, but there's a G20 meeting that's going on there, too. And uh, we'll, we'll see just uh, what kind of uh, waves and what kind of indications they're going to be making when it comes on, uh, to their place on the international stage. Uh, always a pleasure. Uh, thanks to you uh, and to your oven uh, for contributing to the program today. Uh, it's always a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks so much, Stephanie. Take care, and we'll talk again soon. Absolutely. Thank you. Take care. That's uh, Stephanie Carvin, associate professor at the uh, Norman Patterson School of International Affairs at Carleton University. A lot of challenges for some of these new ministers, but uh, especially when it comes to, to what's happening on the international stage right now and to, to the relations with China, as, uh, as the professor uh, so aptly put it. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. The clock is ticking. The federal government has only one day left. Until the court deadline, the uh, cabinet's going to have to decide whether or not they're going to appeal the decision that would see the government pay out billions of dollars in compensation to indigenous families. 
Last month, the federal court upheld two Canadian human rights tribunal decisions. Nicole Reese has some details for us. The first found Ottawa didn't properly fund child and family services, which resulted in it, quote, willfully and recklessly discriminating against Indigenous children living on reserve. The tribunal ordered the federal government to pay $40,000 each to about 50,000 First Nations children, as well as their relatives. The second legal battle stems from a separate ruling that expanded the scope of Jordan's principle, a rule stating when there is jurisdictional disagreement over what level of government should provide a service to a First Nations child, Ottawa takes on the responsibility. The government has committed to compensating the children and their families, but officials say they have yet to decide whether to appeal the federal court decision. Nicole Reese, the Canadian Press. Uh, guys, we know the Prime Minister's on his way over to Europe right now, so you got to figure the decision has been made here. It's probably just going to be announced tomorrow or later today. We'll see what happens. But there are serious ramifications whichever way they decide to go on this. To talk about that, uh, please to welcome to the program Dr. Don Lavelle Harvard. Uh, Dr. Harvard is the president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. Uh, doctor, thank you as, as always for joining us on the program on this uh, very, very important subject. Actually, two subjects because there are a couple of decisions uh, that are coming down right now. Uh, we've reminded our listeners, of course, about the tribunal decision. This is this is not a new issue. Uh, this is something that has been, really been talked about since the Truth and Reconciliation Committee uh, issued a, a number of recommendations a couple of years ago. And this is, I guess, very typical and almost what we've come to expect now of a, of a government dragging their heels on this. First of all, thanks for having me on. Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, the fact that we have one day left here, I'm really hoping that this is signaling that the Trudeau government will not be appealing this decision, because if they do appeal, if they decide to continue to litigate, to continue to waste millions of dollars fighting to not have to fulfill this tribunal order to you know, provide these really important reparations for Indigenous children, I mean, spending money fighting, litigating against Indigenous children in courts goes completely against everything the Trudeau government claims to stand for. So I think this is going to be one of those real truth-telling moments. Their decision here is going to be indicative to Canadians all across the country how the Trudeau government, whether they can walk the talk. Here's, and I'm not a lawyer by any stretch of the imagination, but one of the things I just found incredulous about this, though, Doctor, is uh, the commission ruled on this and, and basically said, you know, the government's wrong, they have to pay this. And the initial reaction from the government, as you recall, was, uh, yeah, we know we have to do this, but now they're quibbling over how much it's going to be and, and which children are going to be eligible. Uh, when you're found to be culpable, you don't get to decide the compensation. I mean, I don't know where their heads are at here. Well, and this is the thing, and people are getting really frustrated with the fact that they are wait, literally wasting millions of dollars quibbling over, you know, which ones to cut off at what point, when, you know, we're talking about the basic human rights of children in this country, and people are walking around with orange shirts that say, you know, all children matter, and the government is quibbling over which children will be included in this compensation. Those millions of dollars that they're wasting litigating would probably cover, you know, the, yeah. the payouts for those children, but would certainly make a huge difference in communities that are struggling for, you know, to provide basic education, to provide clean water. Well, yeah, because we've all seen those shirts, you know, all children matter. Uh, how much do they matter and, and how much is it worth for them to matter? I mean, that's the question. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't want to get into the cliches, you know, you talk the talk and don't walk the walk. But, I mean, the government's been talking about truth and reconciliation since the report came out. Uh, and, and 
they've had an opportunity here to kind of show exactly what they meant by this. This is an ideal opportunity, as I see it, Doctor, for them to to show their commitment to this. And you know, they, they've talked about this all through the, the election campaign, uh, and they said we need to fix this. Well, here's the time. This this is this is this is the, an opportunity for them to to actually step forward and say, yeah, you're right. Let's get this done. Well, and I think that's exactly it, right? When people see a government that says one thing and then argues about technicalities and, you know, we're, we're splitting hairs debating little technicalities on this, this becomes a question of honor. This becomes a question of integrity. This becomes a question of, you know, you have certain principles that you claim, then you need to take action and you need to honor this. You don't need to waste a lot of time debating little technicalities to get out of it or to get out of portions of it or not pay all of it, because that actually shows that, you know, that, that actually goes against any conception of, of integrity and honor. And you know, Canada holds themselves up on the international stage as a defender of human rights. And this is a ruling that has come from the Canadian Human Rights Tribunal. If we don't if we don't uphold the rulings of our own human rights tribunal, do we have, does the government have a right to hold themselves up internationally, pointing out human rights abuses in other countries, pointing to themselves as defenders of human rights, if they're going to debate, you know, providing reparation and, and fulfilling human rights orders from their own national human rights tribunal? That's a very good question. I, I know when the cabinet was sworn in the other day, uh, during the media scrum, uh, Justice Minister David Lametti uh, was asked about this, and his, his short answer was, well, it's a very complex question. Uh, doctor, I don't see it as a complex question. The, court, the, the tribunal has ruled on this. They've said you have to do this. You do it or you don't. And if you don't, well, that tells us a story too, doesn't it? Well, and that's the thing. It's not complex. We make it complex because you're trying to find a loophole to get out of paying it or, or paying all of it. And, and it's actually not complex. I mean, there has been discrimination against First Nations children. This is a human rights issue. The Human Rights Tribunal has set a certain amount. It's not complex. What's complex is trying to wiggle out of it. Absolutely, that takes some complex footwork. And there are precedents here that, that we've talked about here, and Jordan's principle is one of them that comes into play here, uh, which is another ruling. I mean, that they've all talked about their support for these ideas and these concepts. Now that we're actually trying to apply these uh, to a situation here, uh, they seem to be backing away from it. Well, and this is exactly what happens, right? That, you know, we, we have these large principles, we have these rulings. Then when it, it comes down to actual implementation, then there starts the debates about, you know, who's in, who's out, where are the boundaries. Um, and, and again, we get caught up in, in technicalities, but which sounds an awful lot like how the Catholic Church, you know, was had what almost over 70 million that they were supposed to pay in, in reparations and, you know, through some legally wrangling and, and technicalities managed to get out of most of it. Yeah. A couple of billion. And, and, and I forget the exact number, but it was a pittance, a small, small percentage of the money yeah, that, they were supposed to pay. that they paid. A few million that they paid. Well, I want to get into the Pope situation in a couple of seconds, but there's one other issue, too, because we've talked about the Jordan's principal uh, decision and, of course, the compensation decision. Uh, there's another one that's not getting a whole lot of, or of attention here right now, but it's very, very relevant, too. The government is also appealing another uh, separate tribunal ruling uh, that uh, relates to infrastructure. Uh, they were supposed to be providing safe buildings and fa for families and kids uh, to get services for Aboriginal kids, and they're appealing that again. And it's coming down to nickel and diming. Uh, 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 you know, 
a, a crisis situation that we're in right now. You know, we've talked about drinking water advisories, and I know that they always touch the fact that, well, there are many, you know, much fewer uh, communities that are, are under advisories right now, but there are still some. In other words, their work is not done here. And every time anybody comes up, and in this case, it's the Human Rights Tribunal that says, you guys are dropping the ball, you must do this now, they push back. Well, and and this is the thing, right? Like, I mean, yes, there is fewer boil water advisories, but there shouldn't be any. There sh- you know, if, if we're in a country, again, a basic human right. And this is the interesting part about all of these debates, basic safety in buildings for Indigenous children, basic clean water, you know, basic life to, to live free of discrimination. All of these things are about basic human rights that we take for granted in Canada and that we hold ourselves up as a beacon around the world as a defender of these basic human rights. So it, it really is a question of walk the talk. It really is a question of debating these things shows a lack of integrity. Well, we're watching with great interest to see just what the decision is going to be. And, and yes, it's a big dollar figure. We understand that. But uh, that's, that's what compensation is all about. Uh, and, uh, you know, as a taxpayer, yeah, we, you know, we look at these numbers. But at the same time, we also look at the track record of the Canadian government over the last 150 years or so and say something has to be done about this, uh, which segues us very nicely, I guess, Doctor, in, uh, to the announcement yesterday that the Pope is open to the idea of coming to Canada. Um, we're told uh, that it may well be to address this issue. Uh, what are your expectations and your thoughts on this? So two things. One, I want to address the question of big numbers. Yes, it's big money right now, but the cost of not doing this is even greater. So they're just pushing it further down the road. So, you know, it's a much bigger cost if they're not providing basic human rights for Indigenous children, basic social services. And for the Pope, you know, we're, I think the time has come. I think it's really, really, um, I'm amazed, quite frankly, that the Pope has agreed to come here. Now, I know there's a lot of debate about whether he will apologize or not. I mean, the Pope has apologized in other nations. He's apologized in South America for the horrors of colonization there. They've apologized in Ireland. So they've set precedent that they can apologize, and they have apologized to other nations. And I would hope that the Pope has some advisors that are reminding him that there's been a pretty clear demand and clear expectation that the reason he's been invited is to come and apologize directly on Canadian soil to all of the residential school survivors and families, not just to you know, provide an audience to a handful that get to go to the Vatican, but to all of those survivors, because they all deserve that apology. So, I mean, you'd have to be pretty thick to go to a place where you have been asked to come and apologize and go there and plan to not apologize. I mean, I, I can't imagine the kind of out, outrage and uproar that will happen if the Pope comes and doesn't apologize. There are some people who, even if he does, are not going to accept it. There's, there's just been too Absolutely. much hurt that's gone on here, and, and we totally understand that. Uh, but there were three things that they talked about, though, in, in Truth and Reconciliation, in, in uh, Claire's report. Uh, and one of them was the apology, of course. Uh, the other was compensation, just as the same fight we're going on uh, here with the federal government. And, and we don't know if they're going to address that or not. The Catholic Church, as you say, have already shirked their responsibilities from a previous hearing. But the third part of that, as you know, Doctor, is is records, documentation of what went on. That The Church has a lot of those records, and they are not forthcoming at this stage right now. And uh, as you say, there can be no reconciliation until there is truth. And we're not there yet. Well, and this is the thing, you know, as somebody, I come from a Jesuit community on Manitoulin Island, 
I went to Catholic school, and it has been drummed in me since the very beginning that you know, one of the foundational principles of Catholicism, of the Catholic Church, is confessing your sins and asking for forgiveness and, you know, atonement. And if this is one of the foundational principles of the Catholic Church, then, you know, those reparations should be paid without quibbling about technicalities. It, it shows a real lack of integrity and, and a lack of integrity that, you know, wouldn't be respected. You know, we, we expect better things from your average a Canadian Catholic at the grassroots level, we should expect better those people who are supposed to be leaders of the church or supposed to be role models within the church of upholding those ideals. They need to uphold that. And, you know, when we talk about reparations, apologies, yes, there's a lot of people that won't accept the apology. And and that's 100% and, and understandable, given all of the things that apology is not enough. And, you know, that's why there does need, whether it's accepted or not, it's, that's on the, the, you know, the church that needs to apologize because it's the right thing to do. It's because it's their foundational principle and because there's a lot of survivors that need to hear that apology. Whether they accept it or not, it, it doesn't erase history. It doesn't make things better, but it needs to happen as an important part of accountability. And there's a lot of survivors that need to hear that apology you know, before we can even start talking about reconciliation, because if they, if the church doesn't acknowledge and own what happened, then you can never get past it. You can never get to conversations about reconciliation if there's not ownership for their role, and, and it was a very horrific role in what happened. Doctor, under the guise of reconciliation, part of that discussion has been and should be going forward, uh, teaching history properly and talking and telling these stories and listening uh, to the families uh, and the cultures and the communities that have been impacted by that. Uh, and we're hoping that the government's going to make a commitment to that, uh, provincial and federal governments, of course, going forward in the education process. Uh, but that can't happen until we get over this phase. I mean, this is very critical time right now. Uh, this federal government decision, two decisions, really, and and what's going to happen with a proposed papal visit at this stage. Uh, they, they can either set us on the right path towards what we need to do with reconciliation, or they can put up a big roadblock to it. Well, and that's exactly it. And I think, you know, if you look at this from a legal standpoint, you know, any organization that doesn't want to apologize is because apologizing is accepting responsibility, accepting ownership for the act, which in many minds opens up legal liability. I think, you know, producing those records on behalf of the government and, and the church, again, there's fear that it opens up liability. And the Catholic Church, we all know, is, you know, one of the wealthiest organizations in the world, and they have a fear of liability. But this is the thing. If you're holding yourselves up, whether it's the government or the church, as leaders, as, you know, defenders of human rights, as role models, you have to atone. You have to provide reparations. You have to set things right. Otherwise, apologies are absolutely meaningless. Plus, they, it's not enough to apologize, provide reparations, and then continue discriminating against First Nations children, continue fighting against First Nations communities and residential school survivors. They have to change their behavior. And I think that's really going to be critical. What That's what people are looking for. And that's what's on the Trudeau government for the next day. That's what we're going to see, depending on the decision they come out with about appealing. Are they ready to change their behavior? Absolutely. Uh, Doctor, pleasure having you on the program today. I'm sure we'll have more discussions on this after the decision, but thanks for joining us today. You're very welcome, and I'm looking forward to seeing the decision.
So am I. Dr. Don Laval Harvard, Harvard rather, president of the Ontario Native Women's Association. And uh, we're waiting to see just how the government's going to move on this. And, and this is one of, of three different uh, human rights tribunal decisions that the government's fighting. And uh, we'd like to think that there's going to be resolution to all three of them. And we'll get to the, the papal visit, I guess, in more detail later on. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.